Perry Welbrock here. Just a quick little story before we start today's episode. So I have started back to EMDR therapy, which for those of you who are longtime listeners to the show know that I um, did EMDR for 98 sessions over a four-year period um, quite a few years ago when I lived in Cincinnati, Ohio and uh, it was life-altering for me. So I've started back up with this health crisis that I've had going on, and I thought, I need to make sure my mental health and I'm taking care of that. And so we had a session this past Tuesday, and it it rocked my world a little bit. Um, Living here on Hilton Head Island, uh, I had developed uh, just a fear of open spaces, and I thought it was related to, uh, I was involved in two bank robberies in my early 20s, and I thought it was related to the second bank robbery where I was trapped between two armed gunmen behind a house behind the bank when I had fled from the bank. And um, so what I, I I always just tried to focus on that and we just couldn't tap into it in EMDR in Cincinnati. So I said to myself, um, let's, let's try to, you know, see what's going on with this open space thing, uh, this last session. And I won't go into all the details because I could talk for the hour that we had the session, but when we went back in, suddenly I ended up on a soccer field back when I was nine years old. And my parents thought it was, they're very humorous people. My dad was a funny guy and my mom, still hilarious at 86, thought it would be funny to make fun of the way I ran and was just very critical, but in a humorous way of how I ran and told me, don't ever run, you need to be a goalie. Well, I ended up switching to goalie um, and not being on the front line because I was was so concerned and self-conscious and it was very shaming. And in their minds, they just thought they were being funny. Well, as we did this EMDR session, I came to the realization, and again, this is a much more complicated process than what I'm telling you here in these first few minutes of the show, the episode today, is that it somewhere along the line, it triggered in my brain that should I have to escape when I'm in wide open spaces, I can't run. How am I supposed to run away? How am I supposed to escape? How am I supposed to be safe? And so that, that just that correlation and that's the beauty of therapy, at least in my mind, EMDR therapy, uh, which for those who don't know what EMDR, it's eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. And I challenged myself then, and I've since been out to the beach twice. I'm much more comfortable. Uh, I even went on a long pier, which I'm not comfortable with, and ran on it (laughs) and had fun. And I ran backwards and I ran forward and I just was being giddy about it and said, I no longer have to have that attached, that emotion attached to it. And so I did a little bit of rewiring of the brain. And so I just wanted to give that example of things we talk about on the show so often continue to just tune in and find the things that work for you. Find, not every episode is going to resonate with you along your healing journey, um, but you may come across something and you think, oh, my friend or my family member, well, this, they'll really appreciate this. It's not, doesn't resonate with me, but let me share this with someone else. So that's what's helping this show continue to grow. And um, I just send my love, my gratitude, 
big giant hugs. Uh, so thank you again for being a part of this space and for inviting others to be a part of it too. So, all right, now for today's episode, which is awesome and inspirational. Welcome everybody to the Healing Place podcast. I'm your host, Terry Welbrock, and just super thrilled to have with me today, David Richmond, and I'm going to read. He is a transformation expert, author, motivational speaker, trainer, consultant, and so much more. So welcome, David. Thank you. You know, when you said that, Terry, I was thinking transformation expert, like what the heck is that even? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't even know what that is. I think what it is, is that, um, is that I had this like idea in retrospect of a point in my life that created a transformation. Like I didn't know I was doing it. Right. And then I went, Oh, Oh yeah. I went from like, like one direction in life to a completely opposite direction. Like, like literally and on purpose transform myself. But when I was doing, it, I didn't even know that that's what I was. So I think probably every one of your, hundred countries listen to audience members is a transformation expert if they ever were going in one direction and purposefully said no i need to go in a different direction like i need to transform myself that's what makes you an expert i think oh my gosh i love that i love that philosophy well one when i first popped onto your website and saw that Mm -hmm. um i said oh my gosh that sounds so like just i love the wording of that because it just sounds inspirational yeah. right there, but I love it that you, yeah, that you're saying that all of us really are transformation experts in our own lives. Some people earlier in life than others, and some people kind of naturally like are on this progression of like one stepping stone to the next, and it leads to where they're trying to go to. And they, they know, you know, they shine, they're shining the light down the right hallway and they're making their way down the path they should go down. And they're, you know, they're already there. I think most people, or at least I want to think most people, because I'm I'm one of them, um, we just figure it out at some point in our life that, holy cow, we got to do something different. Like for me, that came where I, I lived like the first 38 or 39 years of my life, not being aware of making conscious choices, right? Like I made choices all the time. But I don't know that I did it with an open awareness, like a sense of like, are you making this decision for you? Is this the right decision? Do you understand the factors that are going into it? Do you really like, like, are you being proactive about what you're doing? Or are you just trying to survive, just trying to be reactive? Are you just trying to get yourself out of a hole you dug out, out of, or, you know, how to, how to, you know, take shelter in a storm? No, I, no, I wanted to say, no, like, dude, you got to do stuff on purpose. Like you got, you got to, you, you got to, you know, make decisions that, 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 that are conscious, that are grounded, that are meaningful, that are, that, that are, that are on purpose. Right. That's what, that, that's where my transformation came. I wish it would have came, you know, 15, 20 years earlier, but you know, I guess it just happens when it happens. Yes. Well, my oldest son, who I said is visiting here Mm -hmm. in Hilton Head, and I've just loved having him here, but we have these deep conversations and how many times I've told him, yes, when, when traveling your healing journey, which he's in his twenties and on his healing journey. And I love it. I'm so proud of him Mm -hmm. because I'm like, you're way ahead of the curve (laughs) to be doing the work now, but yeah, make those conscious choices. And I say, listen to your heart, listen to your soul. Like, What's, what's giving you a little nudge? Because when you pay attention and then make your decisions based upon 
what you're consciously aware of. Oh yeah. You can. Yeah. And, and, and I think that there, you know, if there is an inciting moment, you know, um, that you should take advantage of that and use that as a pivot point. You know, for me, the inciting moment came where I had like a bunch of different things that happened at the same time that forced me or gave me the opportunity to really take a hard look at myself. So one, I was dealing with ridiculous amounts of stress in a very stressful um, uh, uh, work profession. I was a um, I was a, 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 a manager of managers of, of wealth managers. So I, I basically managed the people that manage people's money, but I did it on a very large scale. So I worked for a very large company on Wall Street and, and ran a very large business for them. Very stressful. I was in a horrible marriage. Uh, I was married to an abusive alcoholic. Um, very stressful. I had two young kids that I, uh, they were twins, four years old, that I had to figure out how to get them out of that situation and get me out of that situation. I was a smoker and had been for 20 years. I was like 50 pounds overweight and I was just a stress mess. And I was running around like living, I had lived my whole life either surviving, figuring out like how to get myself out of the problem, or I live my life like, oh, I got to try this harder because it's going to make my wife less angry. I got to try this because it's going to show my boss that I deserve a raise. I'm going to try this because it's going to make me look like a better person or a better parent. And I never just like said, dude, what's up with you? And so when my, when all that was going on and then my sister called me and said, Hey, Hey bro, I got some bad news. I'm going to die soon. I got brain cancer. I went, wait a second, man. Like, stop it. Like take a deep breath. So I, I took a deep breath. I got myself out of that relationship very, very quickly, got my kids and me to a safe space. Um, and just literally Terry stood in front of a mirror and said, dude, like, who do you want to be? Like, who do you want to be? Like, what, why, like, what are you doing? And what, what are you basing your decision-making on? And you know, who are, who are you? And I didn't know the answer. Right. I just didn't yeah. know. And, but I knew I wanted to be something. And what I wanted to be was I wanted to be athletic and I wanted to be more aware of the steps that I was taking in life. And I wanted to find a, a purposes and I, you know, and I wanted to be a good example for my kids. And there's all these things that I could come up with who I wanted to be. And I was none of those things. And so I just said, start, start. Right. So if you're going to, if you're going to, if you're going to start being athletic, stop smoking. So stop smoking. And I went for a two minute run and barely could handle it. Two minute run. And nine months later, I was doing an Ironman triathlon and I've done 20 of them since I've done 5,000 mile bike rides. I've done 50 mile runs in the desert, hundred mile runs in the desert. I've done crazy, crazy athletic stuff. And I didn't even start till my late thirties. Um, and, and that's, you know, helped me, um, bleed a lot of positive stuff into all these other facets of my life that I told you were just a mess. Yeah. I love it that you, you started by saying you really started with the baby steps because I mean, standing in front of that mirror, a lot of what you were saying to yourself could be so overwhelming that you just want to be like, well, I'm just going to light up another smoke and <laughs> yeah, just veg here. But you took, you started with that baby step. 
Yeah. And, and you know what? I, I, I don't think I just thought about the thought consciously until you and I were just talking right now, but I've always thought like, and I, and I live with this thought every day that my best days are in front of me. I, I, I really have always thought that. Right. But at that particular time in my life, I think I was looking in the mirror and kind of looking backwards and going, dude, if that's the best days of your life, you, 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 you know, I mean, honestly, you, you've just wasted it, right? If what you, with what you've already experienced in these first 38 years is the best days of your life, then you, you blew it, right? You blew it. And I went, wow, you know what? I'm, I'm an optimistic person. I'm, I'm always a forward thinking person, I think, but maybe I got to take it on purpose. And I got to be like, I got to start doing the things that I want to do. You know, when I was a kid, I used to, my buddy and I used to call ourselves the shadows. And, and that's because I always felt like I was in the shadows. I didn't feel like I was in life. I felt like I was kind of hidden in the shadows, kind of watching life. And sure enough, 20 years later, I found myself still being a shadow going, dude, no, like start living the life you want to live. And, and it sounds preachy, but it's, it's really not. It's just this kind of awareness that some people, maybe your listeners automatically understand it, but it took me like this, this, uh, you know, confluence of events before I, I developed an awareness to say, you got to live life on purpose. Like you, you got to do things in a purposeful, meaningful, grounded, aware manner. And, and what sounds easy, sounds like it should be natural, but for me, it wasn't. Yeah. I always find it so fascinating how many beautiful souls I talk to, you included, that a traumatic event or something comes along that's just that like, bam, uh, that then mm-hmm. is, is a catalyst for change or a catalyst for just moving us into that direction too. Because mm-hmm. you've not just done it for yourself, but now you reach your hand back into that darkness to help others who may be struggling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, that's what uh, my, my last most recent book is, is, is uh, the purpose of that, that last book. And, and the most recent book that I've done is, um, is that I, when I was going uh, through being a witness to my sister's illness and watching her die and seeing um, what she was going to leave behind, you know, she was, she was obviously, you know, tremendously sad she's young kids you know wonderful husband and great friends and you know really living a wonderful life and that was going to be taken away from her and we were able to kind of talk about some of that on the emotional level um, that a lot of people don't have the chance to do or they don't take the chance to do and although I hadn't processed all the emotions and I didn't ask all the questions and learn everything that I could have about the emotional side of what she was going through, I kind of at least became aware of the fact that beyond the medical tasks and beyond the kind of obvious, like, like just getting through each day and all of that, there's this big emotional component to the chaos of cancer. And when I started doing endurance events that were in support of the cancer center that took care of her and in that community of, you know, people that were dealing with heavy things, I started to realize that there was this recurring theme that everybody, everybody had this difficulty in talking about the emotional side of cancer. Like that. when, when are you getting your PET scan? Oh, how are you navigating work? Um, uh, how are you getting your kids taken care of while you're going back and forth to chemo? Those kind of things we could talk about. 
Okay. But you know, um, what's it like to hear, uh, what do you say to your friend who told you that their coworker's son, their little three-year-old son got cancer and they're like, they don't know what to say to him. Like, how do you advise them on what to say or what not to say? Like, how do you, how do you deal with the guilt of what you're putting your family through and be able to talk about it? Right. Like there's just a million different facets of this emotional side of cancer. And I said, if it's something that's totally prevalent in everybody, Terry, how can we bridge the gap? How can we make people better equipped to start really hard conversations? And, um, uh, and so I embarked on a journey to find people, enough people that gave me enough diversity of trauma, of range of age, range of type of cancer, range of severity, a range of the emotional response that they had, and then reflected that against all the traumas in their lives, um, uh, and which would give us some insight into how and why they did or didn't process the emotional side of it, or allow us to connect with them on a certain level. Um, so that if I told these stories in a way that would evoke emotion from the reader, that they would identify with that person and go, oh, okay, so if they're telling me they don't want my help, then I'm not going to take that as an easy way out of an uncomfortable situation because I don't know what the hell to say to them anyway, and I don't know how to give them help. Maybe that is indicative of the fact that maybe they were abandoned as a kid and they don't want to rely on people for help. Maybe they're too scared to ask for help because they're afraid you're going to say no. Maybe when they say they don't want help, it's because they feel guilty that they are needing your help. Maybe they don't want to ask for help because they're the leader and they don't want, they don't want to lose their position and your stand, they're standing in your eyes and they're, they're afraid that they're going to let you down if they ask for help. There's a million reasons, right? But uh, if, 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 if it's an uncomfortable situation, which it normally is, and you find out that your friend is sick and you go, Hey, do you need anything? And they go, no, I'm fine. You're like, thank God, because I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to say anything wrong. I don't want to be stupid. Right. It gives you a ability to not bridge the gap. And I'm saying that we should try to bridge the gap because these meaningful connections are what, what life's all about, you know? Yeah. I had just never thought of it about it that way before. I mean, immediately when you started talking and started talking about the person who doesn't want the help, I said, Oh, abandonment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what popped in my head, but there, you're right. There are a million reasons why it could be. Yeah. You know, and, and that's with any trauma, but I feel like cancer, there's certain traumas that you can't explain. You don't know what to say, right? What, what do you say when somebody loses a child or right. what do you say when a coworker, you know, uh, um, uh, jumps off the building or something? I mean, there's sometimes you can't, there's not the right thing to say ever. Like there is no words, right? But a lot of times, and especially with cancer, because it can be a disease that goes on for a while, because it can recur, because it's so shrouded in mystery and, you know, one diagnosis could lead to death and one diagnosis could lead to um, the expectation that you're going to die. And 30 years later, you're still, you're still kicking the can down the road. So it, um, because of that, it comes with a unique set of opportunities to either back away because it can be so uncomfortable or it gives you an opportunity to lean in to maybe form the meaningful connection 
that you really want to have and that that other person wants to have with you. Um, but you have to be equipped to understand how to talk to them and, and how important the emotional side of what they're going through is because my research in this project, it went on for about five years. I don't care if you're a doctor, a critical care nurse, you lost a parent to cancer, you lost a kid to cancer, you lost a friend to cancer, a loved one, you know, uh, you yourself went through cancer, you know, five different times. I don't care what the set of circumstances are. Every single person I spoke to either hadn't processed the emotions, so they didn't talk to people about it, or they had processed the emotions, but they hadn't talked to people about it. That was the common theme. And so I, I, I had to go on this journey to try to bridge that gap so that when the reader reads about, you know, Bobby or Terry or Joshua or Karen, the real people with real names, that they can go, oh my gosh, you know what? I can identify with that. And maybe I can put that on my back pocket. And when the situation arises, maybe I can use my idea of what they went through as to what my loved one or friend or coworker or spouse or whatever uh, might be going through. And maybe it would give me some tools on how to better help them through the emotional side of it. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, and it's so inspirational that you, you really combined what you were first talking about that mm -hmm. your um, inspiration to be, be an athlete and, and to really transform your own life and then taking it and combining it with this research for this project with this, for this book um, and that the proceeds were going, the net net profits were going to um, cancer agencies. So yes, yeah. so you rode your bike, right? Right. To your uh, last point, um, yeah, hundred percent of the net proceeds are are donated. So I asked each one of the participants. Fifteen finally made it into the book, right? Because sometimes people couldn't go there. Sometimes the story I just didn't it, it didn't solve a. a a question, right? Sometimes it, it was an interesting story, but it didn't solve a question, which right. is like, um, what, what might somebody have gone through that I need to be aware of so that I can better relate to them? That was really the question. Um, but when the 15 finally made it, I just said, Hey, what, um, organization do you have an affinity towards? Um, and then, and then we'll divide up the hundred percent of the net proceeds to go to that organization. So there's a secondary goal of raising a little bit of money, which is always good. And there's a list of the organizations in the book and on the, on the website, but the primary goal was to e equip people to your, to your other point though, on the bike. Yeah. So, uh, cycle of lives, right. That's the name of it. And I came up with this like logo of this dude on a bicycle and he's and the wheels are an infinity sign and inside of the infinity sign on either side is a bunch of spokes and each spoke has a different color. So it's like, it's like this infinity thing and the cycle of life and this whole like, kind of like, I, I got all these different perspectives. And so I'm just playing on the word cycle of life. Right. And I thought, hmm, well, what better way to connect people? than to actually get on my cycle and ride. So I got on my bike and I said, I had been talking to these people for the better part of a couple of years and had only met a few of them in person. So I said, what better way to connect everybody since we're all connected by these emotions and by these stories than to get on my bike and go meet them. So I went 4,700 miles in 45 days, which if you do the math, I took a couple of days off is like 120 miles a day. Uh, it's crazy, crazy uh, stories every single day. 
um, 10, 12, 14, 17 hours of cycling in, in um, some days and uh, just got to meet them, stop at cancer centers, meet a thousand people along the way that reinforced, you know, my mission and, um, you know, the purpose of the project. And um, yeah, uh, that, that kind of tied the stories together. That was the narrative. So the book is the 15 stories, but in between, is a short little narrative about the bike ride and the people that I met along the way and how the stories all tie together. And so, it's, you know, that's the thread that binds all the stories together. Yes. Oh my gosh. Beautiful. And, and I'm sure talking about your sister and your own journey yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I actually learned a lesson. A lot of it's through talking uh, to people like you, Terry, is that um, I, I didn't actually know that I hadn't processed the emotions behind losing her and I had, but, but there was, um, there was something that until I purposefully reflected and you want to find a place of reflection, go for a 12 hour bike ride in Texas. Okay. That'll, that'll give you a point of reflection. Right. But I didn't know until I got on the bike that, that I didn't really a uh, need to process her death or the loss or all of those things. I think I had done that. But what I hadn't done and I didn't discover until I was on the bike was I hadn't processed the idea that I had a very, very imperfect childhood, um, you know, uh, maybe even a little bit on the kind of rough side. And that bled into my adulthood with my family. And um, I had to grieve the fact that the only person that knew what we went through was gone. Right. So what I had, what I needed to process, what I needed to grieve is that sense of loneliness for nobody knowing what I went through, right? Nobody, nobody knew, but her, I, I knew what she went through. She, she knew what I went through, but nobody else did. And I didn't have that person anymore. And that's what I needed to grieve was, you know, sometimes when you lose a parent, you go, oh, you know, I lost, I lost my parent. Sometimes when you lose a parent, you're like, I lost a person that I could call no matter what. Sometimes you lose a parent and you go, man, I lost the person that taught me everything I know. There's a lot of different like aspects of losing somebody. The thing that I, I didn't know until the bike ride was that I had to grieve the, the loss of somebody who knew me better than anybody from when I was a kid. Wow. You know, and that's a different type of loss than just the person being gone. That's, you know, that's a different facet of it. And um, I think that that's important to understand is that we, we can't pretend to know what's going through other people's head when they're going through loss and trauma and cancer and other things. But maybe we could gain some insight into the fact that if we can try to find out what they need or what things in their life affect their emotional response to the trauma, then it might allow us to connect. So it's really sweet when somebody says, oh, I'm, you know, I'm sorry to hear about your sister. That's really sweet and it's wonderful and I appreciate it. But when somebody says, oh my God, what was she like? Were you guys close? You know, what was, what was she like growing up? I'm just like, oh my God, that's so awesome that you asked me that question because that's the part that, that, that touches me the deepest. Wow. Beautiful. I mean, my heart is, well, one, I want to go hug my little sister, but ah. two, because it's true. Like those are the conversations and she and I could talk for three hours on end on the phone, talking about our childhood, because 
we both were there side by side together and survived so much of it together. And nobody else but you two understand it. Yeah. You know, I use the example of, uh, I won't bore you with the whole story behind it, but um, I ha- we went through a, a, a short period in our lives where we couldn't come home until dark. We were not allowed to come home until dark, but we couldn't stay out after dark. Okay. So imagine we're eight or nine years old, maybe a little bit younger, seven, eight, nine years old. And we're trying to figure out how do we get home before it gets dark, but how do we get home after it gets dark? And so we would literally hide in the bushes across the street and wait for the street lamp to come on. And as soon as the street lamp came on, we would race across that street and open up the front door and, and, and go home. And we figured that was the point. Now, there's a lot of shit. Be- oh, sorry about that. No, nope, you're there's good. A lot of crap. There's a lot of dirt. There's a lot of, uh, well, whatever. Behind that, a lot of stuff behind all of that. But nobody's ever going to understand when I say, oh, my God, man, I used to have to worry about getting home before dark, but not after dark, right? Nobody would understand that. But her, right. and I'm sure you and your little sister have so many kind of little nuggets where you just go like, you get me on a different level that nobody ever will. So if you ever lost her, it'd be a tragedy to lose her. But it'd be also a tragedy if it were a part of your makeup and your emotional, you know, recipe to think, oh my God, the person that knows me the best is gone. But you know what? In that particular way, maybe nobody knows you better than her. Right. Well, we've, I've always said that. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. because she just, she gets me. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Wow. Very, very profound. Um, yeah. You've got my, you've got my head spinning. So yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm supposed to do. Right. Spin right. So we talk and, and another thing I'm glad you brought up is we talk so often on this show mm-hmm. uh, about adverse childhood experiences and the impact of trauma. And I'm, I'm, I love it that you're talking about that. You, you along that healing journey and along that, that bike ride through Texas, when you were coming to this revelation, that you realize the impact that that early childhood trauma that that trauma in your in your childhood had on your I guess inability or maybe maybe not inability but not being conscious of the fact of uh, that you needed to process that part of the emotional part of it uh, because wow do aces and adverse childhood experiences have an impact on us as adults they really do and if you are wired to be an overachiever or you want to be an overachiever for whatever reason because you're making up for something because you think you should be or what whatever a million reasons but if you are like that person and i'm that person then if there's imperfections in the equation it's a problem so a perfect example is this like i i used to think like oh my god like like okay i don't do puzzles that often but I like to do puzzles. Okay. You know, like crossword, um, um, jigsaw puzzles. Yeah. The worst thing in the world is if there's a missing piece. Yes. That's just like, <laughs> it's the worst thing in the world. Right. Oh my God. Could you imagine putting all the time and you put the edges in and you separate the colors and you grab this thing and whatever, and you, you can put this puzzle together and there's a missing piece. It's like, that's a disaster. Right. And I thought about that in life and I go, as it's relating to my sister and my family life and just the, all the crap that's around all of that, I, I finally said to myself, you know what, this is a puzzle 
that is going to have a lot of pieces missing. You just got to just accept that. And it's like, oh, okay. Well, if I accept the fact that there's going to be missing pieces, it's not going to bum me out so much. I can't find the pieces that are lost. They're gone, right? I just have to accept the fact that there's that there's a jigsaw puzzle. It happens to be in my life. That's just got empty pieces. They're missing pieces. Just That's just the way it is. And if I accept that, I'm not going to be so bummed out about it. I'm certainly not going to go... Um, you know, smoking cigarettes and trying to overachieve and close my eyes to important things in life just so I won't see those missing pieces. So that's kind of like an analogy that I like to use. It's funny too, because Terry, I was cleaning up the house the other day and I have a, if you can imagine this, I have an 18,000 piece puzzle. Holy moly. <laughs> it's actually an old world map, four of them, Right. So it's each one is 4,500 pieces, but it comes together as an 18,000 piece puzzle. And part of the, and I've had it for like 20 years in the unopened box. Part of the reason I don't want to open it is because you imagine how much time it would take to put an 18,000 piece puzzle together. And what happens if the maker accidentally forgot one of the pieces in there? <laughs> like that would be the worst thing ever, right? But I figure I'm like an 18,000 piece puzzle and I got like, like thousands of pieces missing. So I guess it's not the worst thing in the world. Right. Oh my, <laughs> we, I, I love jigsaw puzzles and I'm an overachiever. So we, yeah. I'm relating to you on so many levels right now, but we, I recently bought one. We, we put a card table out and my daughter and I were, we're like, all right, let's put the puzzle together. And we start getting it. We get the edges, everything's ready to go. And then I said, what is the dog chewing on? Oh, no. <laughs> One of the puzzle pieces had fallen on the floor, and there he was chomping away. And I said, we are still using it. I don't ah. care if it's mangled. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> See, I would, in a previous life, I would have stopped right then. I would have <laughs> walked away and said, forget it. Now yep. I'd be like, all right, we can put a mangled piece of, uh, piece of puzzle in there. Right. Yeah. So we just ended up using the mangled piece. <laughs> yeah. But it's a good analogy. I just, I like, I, I like visuals to me work. It makes sense to me that if you like, like what I learned from endurance athletics is something that, you know, when something hard happened in my life, I would usually complain about it. Okay. Or I would go, okay, suck it up. You got to figure out a way to get through it or whatever. Right. Um, but a hard things were a struggle. Duh, right? That's what you think, but no, they're not. Because I walked in, I had a mentor one time, and I walked into her office and I was complaining about something uh, uh, that was really difficult I was going through at work. And she was running the business, but I was her right hand man and I was having to do something I didn't want to do. And I go, it's so freaking hard. And she goes, darling, it's supposed to be hard. And I went, oh, Oh, you mean like, so when I'm doing an Ironman and it hurts, it's supposed to hurt. Oh, that, that does make sense. Like, right. It makes sense. So now when I go through something that's really, really hard, I go, uh, it's supposed to be hard. So get over it. Not just, go right. do it. it's a different, it's a different thing than complaining about how hard it is and getting through it. If you accept how hard it is and get through it, it's a hell of a lot easier. Yeah. Well, what instantly popped in my head was, you know, you, you as being athletic is yeah. lifting those weights. Of course, you're going to have sore muscles, but guess what? You're getting stronger. Yeah. 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 When I'm doing a 50 mile run in the desert and it's, you know, 115 degrees out and it's, you know, at mile eight, I'm like going, what the heck am I doing here? This is ridiculously hard. I go, 
Yeah, it's supposed to be hard. So just keep moving. Figure it out. It's supposed to be hard. Just keep, just keep doing it. You elected to do it. You want to do it. Just go do it. Oh, I love it. So how are we doing on time? Oh, my gosh. We're good. We're, we could just keep talking and talking. All right. So anything that you wanted to touch upon that we haven't had an opportunity to talk about yet? No. Like you said, before we started talking, we just talk forever. I'm good with yeah. that. <laughs> it's true. Oh, you have another book besides the, so the first book is cycle of lives, 15 people's stories, 5,000 miles and a journey through the emotional chaos of cancer. Uh-huh. That's the most recent book. Okay. And then you have winning in the middle of the pack. I have winning in the middle of the pack. And I have some other books that are um, uh, more specifically related to finance and, and also endurance athletics, but the winning in the middle of the pack book is kind of my favorite only because um, if I would have learned some of the lessons that I learned in doing endurance athletics and running a big business, like if I had been taught that or mentored that, or if I had parents that were interested to teach me things along the way, I probably would have been a lot happier, but the winning in the middle of the pack is just this concept of super quick that, um, um, in a race. Okay. Race of life, the race of business, the a, a real race, a 5k race or whatever, um, there's people at the front and there's people at the back, right? The people at the front always want to win. You're always looking at them to win. You know, sometimes they run over people, some whatever. They're the people that finish first. They kind of just are going to do that because they're world beaters. They're the best, the best. Then you got the people at the end who are literally dragging their feet, trying to figure out some way to get there. Maybe they end up quitting, whatever, right? Um, most of us are in between that. Most of us are right there in the middle of the pack, right? We're not the, we're not the person that's out there to win at everything or can win at everything. We're not the person that's dragging our feet and figuring out a way to not do it, but we're in the middle and in the middle, nobody's really watching us and nobody really cares, which is awesome because I used to live my life thinking everybody is going to, I'm kind of compare myself to everybody because they're looking at me. Most people don't, don't care. They're, they got their own problems. They got their own life to deal with. And I didn't realize that till later in life. And so I wrote this book that talked about the similarities in running a hundred miles and running a hundred million dollar business and, and dealing with difficult things in life. Like what are the lessons we can learn? Like if you tell me, David, um, things are supposed to be hard. It doesn't make sense. But if I wrap it around a few stories, that, then it makes sense, right? If you right. tell me, hey, dude, you got to figure out a way to um, to get through the peaks and the valleys of, of life or the peaks and the valleys of a race or the peaks and valleys of running a business, I say, okay, try, you know, great, good, good for you. But if you wrap that around a few stories, then I go, oh, oh, I get it. You know, a great example of this, if I can ramble for one more second. No, is, ramble away. Is, I love is it. Is Patricia in my book, Okay. Patricia had in, in the, in the, in the cycle of life's book, if you would tell me, Hey, just figure out a way to put your feet on the ground each day and see if you can get out of bed. I'd be like, okay, whatever. That's, you know, that's trite. But when you hear about her story and then you say that it means something. So her story is basically she um, is in a terribly abusive relationship, ho horribly abusive, emotionally, physically, um, and psychologically. Uh, put in the hospital, cut off from family, you know, uh, just absolute horrible, the worst you could imagine. 
and she has to create a new identity. She's got she, in order to escape and she barely escapes and she builds this whole new life. After she escapes, she finds love. Imagine how difficult that might be for somebody that was just abused for four years. Soon as she does, she gets cancer. Oh. He stays with her, but she ends up getting five different types of cancers over a 35 year period during their marriage. And each time figures a way to survive it. Okay. And her story of inner strength and taking charge of your life and figuring out a way to make it through difficult times is unbelievably inspiring, right? And it's very uh, empowering how she took control of every step along the way once she could get out of the control of somebody else. And I asked her one day, I go, how do you do it? And she goes, you know, David, she said, every single day of my life, I get up out of bed and I put my feet on the ground. And if I'm lucky enough to get a, a step or two away from the bed, I turn around, I make my bed and I go about my day. Sometimes I make my bed and I get right back in it. Sometimes I make my bed and I go about my day. She goes, but every single day, my goal is to wake up, put my feet on the ground and try to get up out of bed. And I'm just like, wow, now that means something, right? Now I get, I get what that means. So if you would tell me, you know, Hey dude, just figure out a way to get your feet out of, uh, on the ground and, and go about your day. I'd be like, ah, whatever, you know, go preach to somebody else. Right. But right. If right. But if you, if Patricia tells me, if I understand Patricia's story and how absolutely inspiring and moving and just insane it was. And she says that to me, I go, okay, that's never going to leave me. Yep. That next morning you're putting your feet on the I'm ground. Probably, absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to make my bed and I'm going to go about my day. Even if it's not the best day, even if I got to turn around and get right back in bed, even if I screw up everything I do, I'm still going to put my feet on the ground and figure out a way to get, get about my day, which is really cool. So yeah. I try to include these kind of stories in the, in, in the book, the real people in the winning in the middle of the pack, the real stories. And I guess they're just there to help people uh, reinforce their own belief that they're transforming their lives if that's what they want to do. Yeah. You know? All right. So I have to share my, I have to share my middle of the pack story then with you really yeah. quick. So do we it. did, uh, I, I was living in Cincinnati prior yeah. to living here in Hilton Head. And we said, oh, let's sign up for the um, flying pig half marathon. Now I had never done even like a 5k. So we, we trained and trained and trained and start the the gunshot goes off and we're starting on this half marathon and we are middle of the pack and we're going along and never thought to look at the map of like where it would take us through downtown Cincinnati. And we started going down the road. And then I said, uh, is everybody turning right? Like they're going into Kentucky because I have a horrific fear of bridges. <laughs> so I said, we turned that corner and I said, oh my gosh, we have to walk across the Ohio River over this bridge. <laughs> and so I said, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get on the double yellow because they closed the bridge down. I'm going to get on the double yellow lines and just stay right in the middle. And we, again, there were people everywhere. And I looked up and I said, all right, I feel really good about this because we're right in the middle of everybody. Right. There's people everywhere. I like yeah. comfort in numbers. And so we started going and we're, we're about a third of the way over that bridge. And of all the thousands of people around us, this lady decides to ask me of all people, she turns to me and says, 
does it feel like this bridge is moving? <laughs> oh my God. No way. You're like, what? The hell? I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> and then I said, all right, we're running. And now I, I'm not a runner. And I ran the other two thirds of my, the way over that bridge until I got to the other side panting. But I was like, all right, I did it. That's I so crossed cool. that bridge, but did it middle of the pack and made myself face a fear. So there that you go. is awesome. And you know what? You could probably draw on that in a lot of different ways, both consciously and unconsciously, because you had no idea you could do that. You right. had no idea until you were forced to do it or you forced yourself to do it, that you right. could do that. And that, that is just incredible. And I think that that for me is like the, we talked a little bit earlier about like, the, are your best days behind you or ahead of you? And I think that, you know what, that's a perfect example of you have no idea what you're capable of. So you might as well keep trying stuff because you're probably going to be able to do more than you think you can do. Like you would have never consciously go, yeah, I'm going to go across a bridge that might be shaking from a thousand runners and just see if I can do it. But because you put yourself in that position and you weren't going to quit, right? You're right. Like, all right, I just got to figure it out. That's really cool. Thanks. Thanks so yeah, much. That's yeah. really cool. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm not <laughs> afraid of bridges, but I am afraid of heights. So don't put me on a high, put you and me on a high bridge. We're screwed. Oh, well, that's right. We're, yeah. <laughs> No thanks. <laughs> uh, oh man! That's All right. Crazy. So how do how do people get a hold of your books? How do they like, sure. find you? Uh, go wherever books are sold. Um, oh my gosh! I did an interview with a um, uh, on a radio show in Ireland, and I got an email from a guy who said I walked into three bookstores in Ireland and can't find your book. So I don't know that it's available everywhere books are sold. But I sent him one anyway. Um, but anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstore, um, big chains, little chains, whatever, they can get the book or they have it. Um, uh, uh, like I said, the proceeds, 100% of what would come to me goes out to these 15 um, uh, organizations. Um, and it's supporting something good. Plus, I think the book is good. So I think you might get something out of it. Um, so they can go to a bookstore or just go to the website, cycleoflives.org. Uh, we're a 501c3 um all the information's on the on the on the um website i'll send you a signed copy if you if you order one on the website um st and still 100 percent of the proceeds will go to the the organizations um and yeah that's that's about it oh i so want a signed copy i'm going to go order one because i collect them from my podcast guests so yay nice i'm gonna nice. go do it all right dude well just because you're the host i'll send you one for free oh my gosh yeah. give you a big hug thanks <laughs> all right well gosh it's just been a, just an absolute joy to have you here and thank you for all you do to help shine a light of hope yeah and thank you for what you're doing i i mean i'm totally impressed i mean a couple hundred episodes in the can and people listening and you're inspiring them and making change so keep it up yeah, you're really oh good. thank you thanks all right. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us today on the Healing Place podcast. And remember, until next time, be gentle with yourself. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Terry Welbrock again. Just wanted to thank you for listening to the episode today and remind you to visit my website as well as the academy.terrywellbrock.com for the courses. But if you go to my website, terrywellbrock.com, you can sign up for my monthly Hope for Healing newsletter, which is also jam-packed with information and strategies and blog pieces and guest blog pieces and links to shows um, and just a great space for, uh, again, healing and hope.
strategies. Thanks for, again, being here and being a part of this healing space. I very much appreciate you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you.